Forbes magazine says we've become a nation of quitters. Americans are leaving their jobs at record rates. A more polite term for it is the great resignation. Maybe you've heard that term used on the news. 55% of U.S. workers are thinking of quitting their job when polled. When do you know it's time to find a new line of work? One article I consulted for about 10 seconds gave 30 signs that you might know. One of them was this, the reality of your day-to-day does not match the job description. And the guidance given by someone in the article called an executive career change coach, who's paying that person? And I wonder if they're going to have you change careers. But anyway, their, their fix for it was this. Listen to your gut. Do you feel light, inspired, and a little excited? Or do you have a sinking feeling in your stomach, a lump in your throat, and a tightening in your chest? That's your inner compass talking. Or you might just have asthma. I don't know. You might just live in the valley. In Genesis 15, Abraham definitely has a lump in his throat and a sinking feeling in his stomach. He's been in Canaan for around 10 years at this point. He's in his mid-80s, as we read. Now, we read his story, a few chapters in the book of Genesis, and we see these great moments, these flashes and scenes in the life of Abraham. But of course, Abraham, he's living every moment of every day of those 86 years. And his day-to-day experience wasn't matching the description God had given a decade ago. Abraham finds himself dealing with difficulties and confusion and frustration over how certain aspects of his life are turning out. Now, he loves the Lord, he trusts the Lord, but he can't see beyond today and therefore is full of questions about his future. When we think about it that way, it sounds a lot more like the kinds of thoughts we have from time to time as we walk with the Lord in this life. This chapter records for us a very frank conversation that Abraham had with God, and that conversation leads to a covenant, one that is still in effect today and still has implications for our world today. As usual, by studying this example, there is a lot we can learn about God's Word, about God's work, and the wonderful ways in which He expresses His love for His people, the powerful ways in which He does so. So beginning in verse 1, we read this. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. God doesn't tell us things we don't need to hear, and so we can assume that Abraham was feeling very low at this moment. Apparently, he was afraid of potential reprisals from foreign armies after his battle victory. Whether he had allowed Chedorlaomer to survive his attack from the last chapter, or whether he was just concerned about the coalition of, of armies and kings, or the local Canaanite armies and kings that have seen what he was capable of and the wealth that he had, he was afraid. And it seems he was feeling some sort of disappointment over how his re- rescue operation had ended up. Because of spiritual conviction, he had turned down all the plunder that they had won back. And as we saw last time, he in fact came home 10% poorer than he was when he left. Now, some commentators criticize Abraham and they say he's throwing himself a big old pity party in this section. But the truth is the text highlights Abraham's enduring faith and his trust in the Lord. It goes out of its way to say that Abraham believed God. But clearly, 
He is frustrated and confused, and we have to say he's second-guessing this course of life that he's walking on. In this moment of discouragement, what happens? Does he have to climb a mountain to seek out the Lord? Not at all. The opposite is true. The Lord comes to lift up Abraham's head. David knew this divine kindness. We sang it tonight. He wrote in the Psalms, you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. What a tender image. Uh, Those of you who have been children or have had children undoubtedly can picture this in your mind, a tender moment where a parent lifts up the head of the crying child and and embraces them and brings them near and brings them comfort. This is the image that God is giving us in His Word. God is revealing this aspect of tender, compassionate kindness, not just to David, but to Abraham too. And this really is a tender moment. God sees into the heart of His friend He knows exactly the struggles that he's going through emotionally and mentally. He sees that his friend is downcast and brokenhearted, and the Lord takes the initiative to come and not offer some sort of empty catchphrase, not just try to throw some easy Band-Aid over the situation and hope he feels better in the morning, but God comes and he says, okay, let's Let's, let's do some heart work here, and I don't want to just tell you to suck it up and, and try harder or just be tough. He says, hey, okay, I'm going to offer you myself again. I'm going to offer you myself to lift up your head, to lift up your heart, to fill you with cheer and comfort. He says, Abraham, I will be your shield. I will watch over you day and night. I will keep the record going of your life and be sure to give you an everlasting, eternal return on your life's investment as you walk with me. I will do it. I'll take care of all of those things, the Lord says. And of course, if God can see into our hearts and know what's going on with us emotionally and mentally, all of those things, which of course we know He can If he can see into our hearts, then obviously he can see around at our circumstances. He knows what's going on in your life. He's mindful of what you're experiencing. If you're going through a time of great difficulty, great confusion, great frustration, great pain right now, the Lord knows, and he's mindful of it. He has not forgotten you. He's not careless about it. He wants to be the one that comes to you in that compassionate tenderness to lift up your head and embrace you as you find comfort in him. In the book of 1 Samuel, we see a touching moment sort of like this where Hannah is so brokenhearted because she has no child and it hurts and it causes all of these these difficulties and strains and pains in her life. Her husband, he's a good guy. He's a little bit of a knucklehead, but he comes to her, and what does he say? He tries to console her, and he says, well, aren't I better to you than 10 sons? Come on, man. Like, <laughs> to quote our president, come on, man. It's not the, that's not the best thing to say at that moment, you know? But listen, when, w- that's not what God is doing here. Even though he's effectively saying the same thing, he says, hey, I'm going to give you myself. You're feeling a lack right now, Abraham. You're feeling a difficulty and a confusion. I'm going to offer you myself. I'm going to give you access into my heart, access into my storehouses and reserves that are going to be poured out on your behalf. And when God offers us himself, he is better 
than any of the things that we might be passing up in earth as we walk with him. He is a greater treasure. He is a greater friend. He is a greater helper. He is a greater opportunity than anything we look out and say, well, but if I didn't follow the Lord, maybe I could lay my hands on that over there. And the Lord says, I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to be your great reward. I'm going to do this work in your life. And it's so much better than anything else the world pretends to offer. Verse 2 says, But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Listen, Abraham didn't want battle plunder. That's not the idea. He wanted that which God had promised to him a decade earlier. Ten years is a long time for us human beings. And a decade earlier, the Lord had made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham is now saying, okay, that's, that's what I want. That thing that you said you were going to give me, that's what I want. The Lord had said to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. And yet here Abraham was, no family of his own other than his wife, his nephew Lot, who was like a son, had now abandoned Abraham a second time. Consider that for a moment. He rescues Lot, right, from being swept away in this campaign. We saw this last time. Lot had no hope of escape or return or anything like that. Abraham risked his own life to go and save Lot, and he brings everything back, and then they have that, that, that meeting with Melchizedek and the king of Sodom there and everything, and then when everything is time to be over, what does Lot do? He says, all right, good to see you, Uncle Abe, and he abandons him again. He doesn't say, man, I should have stayed all along. He doesn't say, wow, I, man, I, I was really close to death there. I've obviously gone off course. I'm living you know, in the city of Sodom. I don't know what's going on. He, he packs up his stuff and he goes back, abandoning Abraham again. And sure, Abraham had a bunch of servants and employees, but he had no son. He had no children. That which God had promised to him, he was no closer to attaining than he was a decade before Coming back from the battle too, perhaps Abraham was feeling his age. I would be if I had gone on a battle raid 120 miles by foot when I was 86 years old. I know these people lived longer than we live, but not that much longer. He's 86 years old. What good was God's promise if his time was almost out? And that's what Abraham is, is thinking and feeling and saying. And so he boldly speaks to God here. And he says, if you're going to make me into a great nation, we had better get a move on. He was going to have to wait quite some, some more time, 15 more years. But Abraham here is still in a position of obedience. He's still in a position of belief. He refers to God here as master Lord. That's the phrase that he uses. He says sovereign. He recognizes God is his king. God is his master. And he is the servant. And he says, man, Lord, what are we going to do here? But interestingly, after Abraham speaks, the Lord doesn't answer him immediately. There seems to be a pause, a silence, no, no return words on the other end of the line. And so Abraham speaks again. Verse 3, Abram continued, look, you have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house will be my heir. It's interesting. We can see that at the same time, Abraham believed God's promise we're told that outright, and we see it. He believed God's promise, but he's also blaming God for what seemed like a failure in the work. He said, man, God, this is your problem, your fault that this project is not on track. You have given me no offspring. Sarah will say the same thing in the next chapter. 
God, since God has refused to give us offspring, is, is kind of what she says. And they both have this sort of mentality where they want to follow God, they love God, but at the same time, they're allowing their hearts to sort of point their fingers at God and blame God for what they perceive as a problem and a lack, that God is late, that God has failed in some way. And because they have allowed that attitude of blaming God to creep into their hearts, it's going to lead to one of the major missteps in their life. We'll read about it next time, hopefully a huge mistake that they're going to make regarding Hagar and Ishmael. God had not failed. It just wasn't time yet. That was the thing. We read this and we understand, no, just wait. Abraham, just wait 25 years and everything will be fine, right? We read that because it's easy. We just page through his story really quick. Abraham had to live all of these years. And from the moment that God had made that initial promise to him to the time that Isaac is born, it's 25 years. I don't want to wait 25 years for thing. Have you noticed that Amazon Prime is not two days anymore? I'm about to go on a letter writing campaign. <laughs> Dear Jeff Bezos, three days? What are we animals that we have to wait three days to get our packages instead of two, Right? And so God had not failed. It just wasn't time. God does things at just the right time. He says so, and it's true. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, the New Testament says. At just the right time, God reveals himself. At just the right time, he pours out his grace and moves in compassion for us. Those are all references from the New Testament. Now, we always think the right time is right now. Right now, when I'm feeling the sting of disappointment, when I'm feeling the difficulty of the situation around me, when I'm feeling that lack, when I'm feeling emotionally discouraged, the right time is now, obviously, God. And so let's get a move on with that, those promises that you've made to me. But the Lord, remember, has been working out his plan from before there was time. Before time existed, before the foundations of the earth, before he put together the space-time continuum, God was not only working out his plan for salvation, his plan to redeem mankind, but he was also considering your life, his great love for you, and those good works that he had prepared beforehand that you might discover and walk in. And what a mind blower to think that in a, in a time before time, God was considering your time and how it was a perfect time, despite what it may feel like to us emotionally. God's plan for people is specific, and it is very personal. Look at verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to Abram, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And so the Lord responds to Abraham, and he says, yeah, I, I know Eliezer this one. He's specific. You know, I, I know him and I care about him and I care about you both, in fact. But Eliezer is not going to figure into my plan for your offspring. I've got other plans for him. I've got other things going on. It's good that you're connected together, but he is not specifically part of this plan that we're talking about for your life. Now, notice also, God, of course, knew the state of Abraham's heart. He knows our frustrations. He knows our weaknesses. He's not mad about it. He knows about it. He knew about it from before you were wherever it existed, before the foundations of the earth. He knew all of the days of your life, all of the thoughts you were going to think, all of the feelings you were going to feel, and he loves you still the same. But even though he knew Abraham's frustrations and his weaknesses, 
He knows the weakness of our frame, the Bible says. But notice here, he did not want Abraham to remain in that state. He responded to Abraham with comfort and and to give him greater clarity and to give him revelation and a greater understanding, not of everything. He didn't spell out and say, hey, in the following number of years, here's when you're going to have Isaac. But he gave him a greater understanding. He gave, gave him a greater revelation of his word so that not only could Abraham be comforted, but so that he could be built up and get out of this phase of frustration and discouragement that he was in. He didn't want Abraham to remain in that state. For some people in, in Christianity, it's fashionable to celebrate what they call brokenness. This is a pet peeve of mine, and so I'm going to get pet peeve about it a little bit, but <laughs> you see this sometimes out in the wider Christian culture, Christian blogs and podcasts and those sorts of things, and just this celebration of brokenness, whatever that means. And it's always very sort of metaphysical and, and poorly defined, and let's all be so excited about how broken we are. And I, I guess folks mean well, but practically worked out, it cannot help but create a limp Christianity, one without confidence, one without answers, one without spiritual strength. God didn't want Abraham to stay in his feelings of brokenness here. He didn't want him to stay in this second-guessing doubt that he was feeling. He didn't want him to stay in frustration. That's not what God wants for us. Puritan preacher Richard Sibbs wrote this, Christ was broken that we should not be broken. He was troubled that we should not be desperately troubled. Whatever may be wished for in an all-sufficient comforter is found in Christ. Authority from the Father, strength in himself, and wisdom. God wants us to be like strong trees planted by rivers of water, not the little Charlie Brown tree that like you put a little weight on there and and all the needles are falling off. Adorable in a cartoon, not adorable in a Christian relationship with God. Because a Christian that's celebrating brokenness and stuck in brokenness and stuck in doubt and frustration all of the time, that's not like, I'm not saying that that never happens. Clearly it happens. It's happening to Abraham, the father of the faith. He's in a time of doubt and frustration and discouragement. That's normal. God knows that. But then what does he do? He comes with his word and he comes with his power to build up his people. Because if you're Abraham and your tears are flowing all the time because you're so full of doubt and frustration and discouragement, what happens when the Amorite brothers that he's friends with come and say, hey, why don't you tell us about your God? Oh my God, he doesn't help me at all. What's going to happen? Do you think they're going to be interested in following your God? I wouldn't be. Be like, this guy's like Charlie Brown. Nobody wants to be Charlie Brown's friend. I just realized I have another Charlie Brown reference later in the study. So (laughs) big Charlie Brown has gotten to me. So, okay. Verse five. So God took him outside and he said, look at the sky, count the stars. If you're able to count them. And then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Wow. So it seems that the Lord was there with Abraham in what we refer to as a theophany. That's just a term for a time when Jesus visited earth in the Old Testament before he became incarnate, before he became the God-man he would visit. Sometimes he's referred to as the angel of the Lord in some of these passages. And so we would recognize this perhaps as a theophany. And so there they are in the tent. Abraham is pouring out his heart to his master. He knows who he's talking to. And, and, and in this uh, moment of sort of openness and vulnerability, 
the Lord says, come with me. I have something I want to show you. And they walk out of the tent, and there under the night sky, God invited Abraham to look toward heaven. Philosophers sometimes speak of what's called the music of the spheres, right? And one of those hymns that I don't know talks about the music of the spheres, right? And, and it talks about the motion of the celestial bodies of the universe and their relationship to one another. Remember, Genesis as a book drives home the fact that God made all of that as a backdrop that he might commune with us. Maybe you follow Space News. I find Space News kind of interesting. They just sent some kind of probe into the sun, into the corona, and got images back for the first time. And and all this cool stuff that we're seeing, just the power and magnitude of the universe around us. And God says all of that is created so that you and I can have a friendship together like I had with Abraham. And, and what a wonderful thing this is. The universe exists not only to declare God's majesty and His splendor, but to remind us of His love and His power, not just in a general sense, but working on our behalf. You can look up at the stars and know on the authority of the Bible that God created those stars so that He could have a relationship with you as an individual because He loves you, because He wanted to draw you to Himself so that you could know more of who He is and who He made you to be. Verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is one of the most important verses in all the Bible. The New Testament certainly thinks so. It's referenced multiple times by the Apostle Paul. James cites it as well. This is the model diagram of how a person can be saved, how they can be made right with God. When a person trusts God in faith, God's grace imputes perfect righteousness into their account, wiping out the debt of their sin because Christ has paid the penalty for it. Abraham did not have to have a son to be saved. He didn't have to be circumcised to be saved. He didn't have to pass a certain number of faith tests to be saved. He didn't have to obey a certain number of consecutive days in order to earn a home in heaven. All he had to do was believe the Lord, trust him as a person, and believe what he had said in his word. And the work of salvation, the accomplishment of that incredible feat, is all done by God. He does it all. He makes it possible and makes a way and invites us in, and our part is simply to believe. Of course, saving faith is not just lip service. It's not just a, 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 a math formula that we acknowledge in our minds. Real saving faith, as we learn about in the Bible, is a living faith. It's alive. Like Abraham, it brings us into an actual relationship with God. And, and though we struggle and fall short and fail, we continue to trust the Lord, right? So this is such a great image for us. Abraham is being declared on the authority of Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that he has saving faith here, and yet is in the context of him saying, Lord, is any of this really going to happen in my life? Are you actually going to do what you said you're going to do? And so we just have such a great example there of, of something that we see later in the New Testament when that father cries out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus is like, yeah, absolutely. And so we see this, this model of saving faith, and yet we also see the reality of the frailty and imperfection of the human heart. 
And so uh, this should be a great comfort to us as we continue to learn to trust God more and more and continue to uh, 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 work out our salvation in fear and trembling. God, in His grace, is excited to count things on your behalf. Do you notice this? It says here, he believed and God counted it to him as righteousness. He credited it to him. And it's not just about belief and righteousness. God is excited to count things on your behalf. This little mustard seed of faith in Abraham, God says, that counts, that counts. And now I can put all my righteousness into your account. Later in the New Testament, Jesus said, just give a cup of water to someone in need, that counts. That counts as if you gave it straight to me. And everybody's like, Lord, when did we do that? You gave it to that person, and that's like giving it to me. I counted it. You ever play games with your little kids? Give them extra points sometimes. You know, that counts because that's the kind of Lord uh, our God is. And so take comfort tonight. Your prayers count. Your worship counts. Your service to the Lord counts, and it counts big. Verse seven, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. After the tenderness of this friendly talk, this statement seems somewhat out of place, right? But God is now initiating a covenant ceremony with Abraham. He's getting all legal with Abraham. He says, okay, Abraham, let's make it official with a contract. Pretty neat. Now, it wasn't that God finally decided to commit He wanted to demonstrate to Abraham how serious his commitment already was. He knows that Abraham is still struggling emotionally with how it seems like it's impossible for God to do what he has promised. And so the Lord starts off by pointing out that he has been watching over Abraham's life all this time. He says, Abraham, you're worried about what's coming next. I just want to remind you that I've been watching out for you every single day of your life. I've been drawing you forward and bringing you to myself every day of of your life. The psalmist wrote, the course of my life is in your power. My times are in his hands. God's goodness and faithful love pursues you all the days of your life. Verse eight says, but he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? It's not always wrong or unfaithful to ask for confirmation from the Lord. We can safely say that Abraham is having a crisis of faith. It doesn't seem like things are happening as they should. So was Abraham wrong in the, about the decisions he had been making? Lord, am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing? I thought by now we'd see a little more fruit on the tree. These are honest questions, honest feelings. One commentator notes that Abraham's question here shows that he really was taking God seriously. He says, yeah, I believe you. I believe that you're going to give me offspring. What's the deal? I have no offspring. Seems like these two things don't compute. Please help me understand. Verse 9. He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so he brought all these to him and he cut them in half and he laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Now, this was a ceremony that people performed in order to confirm an agreement together. This was a, a, a binding contract ceremony. They would walk through together through these slaughtered animals symbolizing that if one of them violated the agreement, they deserve the same fate as the butchered animals. This custom lasted a long time in this part of the world, at least all the way into the time of the prophet Jeremiah's day. He references it in chapter 34 of his book. Verse 11, birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. Do you ever contend with seagulls on the beach? 
man, they're persnickety. They want those, they want those Cheetos you brought, and they're just little bitty birds. I remember being um, a lot closer to vultures in Peru than I wanted to be one time when we were there. There was some roadkill or whatever, and so every morning we'd leave this house in the city of Pucallpa, and these um, the, these big vultures were there just picking this thing clean. They're big, nasty birds. That's the kind of birds we're talking about here, vultures, carrion birds coming down to eat these dead animals. Now, on the one hand, this is a very humorous scene, right? Abram has everything set up, but then nothing happens. So he's gone to all this trouble. He had this interaction with God. He sets up this well-known ceremony and then nothing happens. He waits around hour after hour. Imagine some of his servants coming out that day, or maybe some of his neighbors passing by and uh, saying, what, what you doing, Abraham? What's going on here? And he says, oh, this? I'm cutting covenant with God Almighty. Oh, okay, is, um, is God here now? Can you see him now? And then he says, no, he was here, but he took off a little while ago, and he'll be back in a little while. I mean, that's funny, but also super weird. And what, what are you thinking if you're Abraham? We saw that Abraham was struggling. I'll tell you who it wasn't funny for. It wasn't funny for Abraham. We can look back at this and see the comedy in it, but undoubtedly he was frustrated and just had another moment of discouragement. He had just been in conversation with God, and now God seems to be absent again, even late. Maybe he felt like Charlie Brown. I shouldn't have picked this life. Everything I do turns into a disaster. Isn't there anyone who knows what spirituality is all about? But the Lord wasn't late. He hadn't forgotten he would not fail to accomplish his project. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. It had been a long day after a long night in which Abram probably hadn't slept at all, right? He went out and looked at the stars under the night sky, and now we've been through the whole next day, and he's been waiting around for this contract to happen, and now we're getting into the sun setting again. And now Abraham was in the dark, Bible commentator Derek Kidner points out that God initiates covenants with moments of darkness. We see it here. We see it at Mount Sinai with the giving of the law. We see it at the cross, moment of darkness. We see the terrible darkness at the end of the great tribulation before the dawn of the second coming. But notice Abraham here, and this is important theologically. When it's time to sign on the dotted line, he is deeply asleep, and yet he can see what's going on, and so he is paralyzed for the rest of the proceedings. God alone is going to agree to and sign on to this covenant. Abraham has no portion, no part that he has to uphold. He's not going to walk through the animals. It's all on God. God does all the work. God guarantees all the terms. God brings all the capital. God carries all the liability. It's all the Lord and his grace and his power. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions. Abraham had been worried about the immediate future. Where's, where's my kid, Lord? And yet God shows him the future centuries ahead. Why? 
Lots of reasons, I'm sure, but we know that in addition to making Abraham a father, God was doing something else as well. God was making him a prophet. God's going to tell Abimelech, this dude is a prophet in chapter 20. We should also note that God works with both fluid and fixed timelines in human history. This prophecy shows a specific amount of time after which things were determined to happen, and they did happen, they would happen. There's no way that they couldn't happen. At other points, God allows a fluidity in his providential working in human history concerning when things will happen. For example, after going out from Egypt, after that fixed prophecy here, we see that God said, okay, and now I'm going to take you back into the land of promise. And what should have taken a matter of weeks or months at most ended up taking 40 years. And so what we find is that God has some flexibility to his providence, but when he sets a time schedule, it will be done. So how does this apply to us? Well, remember, the Apostle Peter said that we can hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. We're told that, that um, the rapture is an imminent event. We should not and cannot set a date for when Jesus is going to return for his church. It could happen tonight. It could happen 100 years from now. But once the great tribulation begins, we've been given a very specific down-to-the-day timeline in the books of Daniel and the Revelation about when things are going to happen, and they will happen according to that fixed timeline. Verse 15, but you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Not everything that would happen between now and then would be easy or pleasant, but the end would be good. As we walk with the Lord, we know that we are headed to a good completion in peace with our Heavenly Father. There will be hardships along the way, but we need not fear, only trust in the Lord. Verse 16, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. Now, this is an astonishing revelation. I thought we were talking about me here, is what I would have said if I was Abraham. Amorites, I don't care about Amorites, we're talking about me. Well, Abraham, we're talking about you, and we're talking about some other folks, those around you, like the Amorites. Well, Lord, what do you have to do with the Amorites? They're pagan weirdos. They're evil. That's true, but the Lord loved them. He loved them as much as He loved Abraham. As he had in the days of Noah, so here too, God was extending generations of mercy to these people, giving these undeserving people a chance to turn to him and be saved. God must judge sin because he is just and holy and pure, and he will judge sin, but his long-suffering waits because of his compassion and because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. But he can't just look the other way. If people refuse to take Christ as substitute, if they refuse to believe, then they must be judged for their sin. Okay, Lord, but what do the Amorites have to do with me? You know, what about my life? We're talking about my family. God's desire to save the lost impacts us in lots of ways. Here are a couple. First, he sends us to be a testimony of his love and his grace and his truth to these sorts of lost people. Just as Abraham had developed relationships with those three Amorite brothers, so so we are being sent out to explain to the Amorites around us who God is. But because of that and because of God's long-suffering, it also means that we, his people, are going to endure difficulties and hardships often at the hands of those he's trying to save. And we are called to endure those things with patience and compassion, remembering how glad we are that God waited for us 
and sent a rescue team to, to pull us out of the dark. Verse 17, when the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, in the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. There are a whole bunch of suggestions as to what the fire pot and the torch represent, but here's our focus for tonight. First, the descendants of Abraham have never held all the land that was promised here, not under Joshua, not under David, not under Solomon. And that means that God is still on the hook to keep this promise, and he's going to keep this promise to ethnic Israel. And so we look forward to that fulfillment in what is called the thousand-year or millennial kingdom after Christ's return. Second, it was all the Lord. Remember, Abraham is sleeping on the sidelines. It was all by God's power, all by God's grace, all by God's design. Abraham's part was to believe and to continue walking by faith in obedience, to not be worn down by his earthly circumstances, but to be confident in the Lord, to anchor his life to the word of God, knowing that God would accomplish all he had said. And so in summary, this passage gives us a look at God's word and God's work. We see here that God's word is prophetic and it is personal. He speaks through his scripture to you about his intentions for your life and for this world and, and, and much more that he intends to do in this world. And he speaks prophetically in his word. He speaks definitely and definitively about the work he is going to accomplish. That work is powerful. He works powerfully and providentially, progressively, persistently, all based on the promises he has made. When we find ourselves discouraged or frustrated or wondering whether God has forgotten us or whether we've made a mistake, consider the life of Abraham and how the Lord drew him on little by little, sending his word. And, and remember that by being Abraham's friend, he was able to pour out his grace in Abraham's life. And remember that that is how God wants to show his love to you as you walk with him. Don't follow your human gut into a spiritual resignation. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths and he will be faithful to complete the good work he started in you.